Good evening. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone here to this 10th lecture in the Space for Thought series, a set of events organized to launch our splendid new academic building. Uh, I'm Colin Lewis, head of the Department of Economic History, not as it says there, Hugh Collins. Uh, the department is uh, part sponsor of the event. It, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Richard H. Steckel back to the school and indeed to the department. Uh, this evening, Professor Steckel will speak on keeping score, new approaches to the standard of living. He'll take questions after the lecture. The lecture is being recorded and we hope that a podcast will be available on the school website before too long. Let me just say a few words about Rick by way of introduction. I'm sure he needs no introduction uh, in this audience, but it's part of the convention that we have to introduce our, our distinguished guests. I think my task this evening is quite difficult because it's far from easy to pinpoint Rick's contributions to learning. There are many and they are diverse. I think he is a true polymath whose interests, research, publications are both multi and interdisciplinary. His work embraces various fields, history, economics, sociology, anthropology, biology. And he's more than able to hold his own in each of these scholarly communities. His research combines vision and it's ambitious. Perhaps this explains his ability to pull together teams of experts from these various disciplines and from different, cult from different cultures and indeed different countries. He's combined these two teams into powerful uh, mechanisms of historical and economic research. These teams have pondered evidence provided by human remains, they have worked in the archives, they've dusted down volumes, they have studied various documents. And indeed, they have crunched the numbers. And I hope they crunched the numbers, not the bones. But I guess it depends on where people were, were, were working. Rick has made the science of oxology, a combination of economic history, biology, and sociology, very much his own. He's SBS Distinguished Professor at the State University of Ohio. Rick is also a research associate of the US National Bureau of Economic Research, and in addition to here at the school, has held visiting professorships at Harvard, Flinders, and Munich, to mention but a few centers. He's also sometime president and board member of the Clay Metric Society, the Social Science History Association, the Economic History Association, and the Historical Society. For his work, he has been awarded various prizes, and his research has been funded by a number of distinguished bodies. Uh, the National Science Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Werner Green Foundation for Anthropological Research, the College of Sociology and Behavior, uh, and Ohio State University itself. Rick holds a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago, where he began his career working alongside Robert Fogel, Nobel laureate, one of the founder, one of the founding fathers of the then new economic history. Since his apprenticeship with Fogel, Rick has made signal contributions to the study of the human condition in various fields. 
His contributions include work on the standard of living, nutrition and malnutrition, health and development, physical well-being, slavery and capitalism, fertility and international migration. His research, his publications range from the Paleolithic era to the present day and from pre-Columbian America via Europe to Africa and Asia. In addition to innumerable articles in peer-reviewed journals, his recent major books include The Backbone of History, published in 2002, A Population History of North America, published in 2000, Health and Welfare During Industrialization, published in 1997, and The Economics of U.S. Slavery and Southern White Fertility, uh, published in 1985. His new project is entitled A Dreadful Childhood, Health and Nutrition of American Slaves. All of this and Rick and his work have featured in Time magazine as well. How many economic historians can boast uh, appearing on cover of Time magazine? There are three things that I'd like to bring to your attention about Rick's work before I formally introduce him this evening. These three things are that he has always worked on topics of huge scholarly significance. Secondly, he's prepared to go where the evidence takes him. And thirdly, Rick makes social scientists think. He challenges, he stimulates, and he provokes. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Richard Steckel, Professor of Economics, Professor of History, Professor of Anthropology. Rick. Well. Thank you very much. It's, uh, can you hear me back there? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, I'll turn this down a little bit so we can all see. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure really to be back and uh, seeing this new uh, posh building. Uh, I have a message to take back to America, you know, what can be done at universities. We're so often used to living in impoverished conditions. This is absolutely splendid. So uh, something to emulate for all of us. Um, well, I have about uh, two dozen slides for you on the general topic of keeping score. And three or four of these are kind of introductory perspective. And then I'll weave into methodology of uh, using stature or heights. Uh, and then finally into some results. I have about uh, 10 slides uh, near the end. With that, we'll wrap up and should have plenty of time for questions. So there's a score uh, that may be of interest to some people in this audience. Uh, and of course, we all keep score in uh, athletic endeavors. It's the way you know who wins and who loses. Uh, of course, there are finer points of the game, uh, how well you play, especially if you lost, that becomes important. Uh, so how many shots on goal did you have versus this score, and how was the defense, and that kind of thing. So there are many ways, even in football, or basketball, or baseball, of keeping score. Your own private methods, for example, uh, can be used as well. So here's one, well, I think by any method, uh, looks pretty good for England. 
so let's, uh, with that in mind, let's go to personal health. We all keep score there too, right? Uh, if you walk into a doctor's office, uh, most likely they will take your temperature, blood pressure, pulse, uh, maybe if you appear to be ill, uh, white blood, white cell count, and so on. Uh, there are many, many things that uh, physicians look at to determine whether or not you are healthy. And of course, it's always good to have baseline information. We vary or differ somewhat biologically, and so uh, you want to know if the trend is up or down or getting better or getting worse. So this is very familiar, this idea of keeping score this way. But if we want to aggregate and go from the individual to the entire country and think about social performance, which is a kind of generic term that encompasses really dozens and dozens of different measures or ways to think about how well an entire country is doing. And for economists, of course, this would be gross domestic product. Uh, for demographers, this would be the life table or average length of life or measures of morbidity, sickness, uh, ill health or disability. And we're here today to talk a lot about anthropometric measures, uh, which is a relative newcomer to the scene uh, all for social scientists, although people have been working on this methodology since at least the 1830s. It's not quite so new as you might think. Uh, and then, of course, BMI, body mass index, weight, and these kinds of things are used as well. And we'll come back to talk about this one. But first, a little background on GDP, probably for this audience. It's re review redundant. But this was a very old uh, idea going back at least to the 1600s uh, when um, European countries wanted to know how they were doing relative to their competitors. Uh, and they had some ideas about how to measure the wealth or income of a country, which uh, are now obsolete. Uh, and it really took a couple of centuries to gravitate toward modern concepts available, uh, especially with advances by Alfred Marshall in the late, uh, the late uh, 1800s. But in some, it's market value of goods and services produced in a uh, country in a particular year. And there are a whole bunch of conventions uh, that are taken in this approach, uh, how to value government services, on and on and on, depreciation. Uh, so the methodology was well established by the late 1800s, but surprisingly, uh, very few countries uh, uh, applied it. The first country to do so on a large systematic basis was Australia in the 1880s. And they produced GDP statistics for several years and then abandoned it as uh, too costly relative to insights that might be gained. But really, it was the Great Depression that brought on interest in gross domestic product as a measure of social and economic performance. Just looking at length of bread lines and so on, even unemployment rates were not very good. So we had here, in the early 1930s, a very sick patient. But no established techniques to determine how sick the patient was. And more importantly, if you tried to treat this patient, how do you know whether you're 
improving things or not. So GDP did that. And then, of course, in World War II, economic planning, uh, concepts of productive capacity of economy were very important. This was very much a conflict over involving economics and logistics. Uh, uh, at least uh, they were vital, I think, to, to the outcome. So that uh, is one point of departure. Let's uh, consider a little bit demography or the history of measuring health. Um, systems of widespread vital registration, that is measuring deaths as they occur, filling out what's called a death certificate, um, was not very, it did occur, and there were bills of mortality in, in London and other cities going back to the 1600s, uh, but systematic recording of this is mainly a phenomena of the 19th century. So um, you record age, sex, often occupation, place of residence, and so on. And that becomes the numerator of uh, death rates. And the denominator is the number of people at risk in these different ages uh, and by sex. And that's usually available from the national or state or local censuses. So, in uh, the intuition of the life table is it measures average uh, length of life. You might think you could determine this accurately from looking at tombstones and cemeteries, but you can't uh, because there's migration and because fertility patterns affect the age distribution of deaths. Very high fertility populations, ones that are growing, have a lot of deaths at young ages, and that brings down the calculated age of death relative to what you would see in an age-adjusted system as provided by the life table. So a lot of progress was made on this in methodology and implementation during the 19th century. So really here, the demographers were ahead of the economists on this particular point. Um, now, morbidity, Illness or disability is very tricky to measure. Um, ideally, you would have uh, 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 physical exams at least once a year, but more often, really, monthly, uh, weekly, daily. Uh, are you 100% today or not? Are you feeling really up to par? Uh, and so on and so forth. This is usually measured crudely. Uh, with days lost from work or school, of course, uh, people are not at school or work for reasons sometimes they're not sick, and of course they may be sick and still go to work or school, so uh, it's, it's difficult. Uh, thinking way ahead on this point, uh, if at some point a decade or two or three uh, people come to have uh, chips, lab-on-a-chip technology implanted in their body that will read white cell counts and temperature and a whole bunch of other indicators. Uh, we may be able to upload information about health uh, in the same way that we count unemployed uh, or inflation or what have you. So, we'll see, but that's frankly not very well measured. Okay, let's turn to heights. Actually, uh, if you look over the last thousand years or so, uh, heights uh, were not first used 
for purposes of understanding health. They were uh, people measured one another for reasons of art. And so we have here Cesariano's uh, uh, sketch of Vitruvius's rule of ideal human proportions, you know, the center of the body is the navel, and if you stretch out, kind of spread eagle. Uh, then this is uh, uh, a, uh, a point of departure for artistic proportion. So you certainly don't want to make statues or uh, paintings uh, that were emerging in uh, the Renaissance uh, that are ill-proportioned. And here's another example, Audrin's measurements of the statue of Hercules taken in 1683. Uh, again, uh, the idea is to recover ancient knowledge, classical knowledge, bring it into modern times and make, uh, and make use of it. Now, um, moving ahead a couple of centuries to the mid-late 18th century, we have here uh, a sketch of how a particular person grew uh, Montbiard's son in France, and he was, uh, he measured his son a couple of times a year and documented how much uh, his boy grew from one year to the next. And, and uh, this is really a very good example of an early growth study. All modern studies show this general pattern. That is, little babies are not little very long. They grow about 25 centimeters in the first year of life, and then this what's called velocity, or the change in height, declines, and in the case of the individual, often irregularly, um, uh, down to a pre-adolescent minimum that's about uh, one-fifth or one-sixth the level in uh, early childhood. And then there's this phenomenon called the adolescent growth spurt, which some of us fondly remember, especially if you were playing sports, is a time you could eat as much as you wanted without putting on weight. So if you retain those habits after age 18 or 20, uh, you grow outward rather than upward, which is a, a problem, of course, in modern society. Uh, but anyway, um, this uh, curve has survived. Unfortunately, Montbiard's son didn't. He died about uh, 10 inches shorter than one might think from this growth chart. He was uh, executed by the guillotine in the French Revolution. Uh, so uh, um, anyway, this has survived. It's a very important example of uh, one of the earliest well-done height studies. Another height study, this is Goethe's sketch Goethe worked in the service of Carl August here, um, and obviously he had time to doodle away one day while he observed the process of recruiting soldiers. Um, and uh, it's actually quite a sardonic drawing. Let me explain what's going on here. Uh, here's a, a person who works for the regiment. He's inviting people to come in to be measured. So many military organizations had minimum height standards, okay? So people are waiting outside in some long line, presumably. Uh, then they come over here and they take their boots or their shoes off, okay? Then the next step 
Uh, here's the drum of the regiment. They go over here to be measured uh, uh, this way. And this fellow here, this chap, is recording the heights, uh, name, age, and so on. And then if you pass the height or physical exam test, you're welcomed by someone over here. He has his arm around this chap here on the left into the regiment office or the regiment headquarters. And uh, the Duke, or the uh, Carl August probably never saw this drawing because you can't see it very well here. Here's a gallows right there. Uh, and so you come into the regiment whose symbol is a gallows. That means army life is hard. Likely you're going to die. <laughs> and so that obviously was never the uh, symbol of an actual regiment. It was just uh, Goethe's concept of what was actually going on. So why were troops measured? Well, for uniforms, to determine um, identity if people deserted, right? You want to track down deserters and hide then, as now, is an important uh, indicator of uh, identity. Driver's license, passports, and so on. Many uh, forms of identification have height, uh, height in them. And you wanted to know fitness, how fast soldiers could march, and you might organize them by size, and so on. So it was very useful. Now, let's move forward a couple of centuries to modern times. These data are from the United States, but really any modern industrial country, you would find the same pattern. These uh, numbers come from the growth charts put out by the National Center for Health Statistics in the United States. And so it shows here growth velocity, centimeters per year, much like won't be our sun. It's just smoothed out because we're working at the population as opposed to the level of the individual. There's this irregular, somewhat irregular decline, the adolescent growth spurt, and so on. And I, I repeat this kind of information for reasons of understanding this is how uh, people grow under good socioeconomic circumstances. But in the past, and even in many parts of the world today, the socioeconomic circumstances aren't so good. There may be famine or chronic malnutrition. Uh, so we have forms of physiological stress here imposed on people. Uh, and so uh, I think a, 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 an analogy can be very useful. Think. Uh, of the human body as a biological machine. Uh, we're all machines, somewhat different, of course, but we all consume fuel, just like real machines do. Uh, the fuel is um, calories, protein, fat, micronutrients, and the like. There's a blend, a special blend for us, of food on uh, which we thrive. Uh, and then we consume fuel. Uh, in basal metabolism, just staying alive in bed at rest, you'll consume maybe 12 to 1400 calories a day. It's really rather substantial to circulate the blood and to breathe and these kinds of things. So then if you put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and start working, uh, your engine runs hard and fast. 
and you'll consume a lot of calories. How many? Well, it depends on what you're doing. The most arduous uh, sustained activity I know of is competing in the Alaska dog race, which lasts about two weeks, uh, not as a dog, but as a human. Both consume about 10,000 calories a day, by the way. They work 20 hours, um, trotting along the dog sled or pushing it when it's going uphill. Uh, and the people who win that race uh, start out a little bit overweight and they lose 15 or 20 pounds uh, over a two-week time, partly because it's difficult to eat enough calories to maintain your weight. And the dogs have to be extraordinarily fit and well-fed as well. Um, so what that suggests is you can starve on 6,000 calories a day. Hard as that may seem, you know, if you work enough, put the, you know, uh, you can starve. And uh, so um, that suggests that it's very hard to think of minimum daily requirements for calories, vitamins, and minerals, and so on. They all depend or are conditioned on how hard you're working. We have such figures, of course, but they imagine a reasonably sedentary individual today. Uh, and in the past, that wasn't true. Uh, also, there's disease, um, which consumes fuel. Because if you're fighting an infection, your body temperature goes up. Or uh, you have to mobilize your immune system. Uh, and if uh, you have a gastrointestinal disease, for example, you won't fully process your fuel. And so you'll end up uh, uh, perhaps sick or certainly not consuming uh, or getting all the nutritional value out of your food or your diet. So um, we like to think then of height as having a low priority uh, for human existence. In fact, if you think about it, we evolved over the eons, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years without three square meals a day. This isn't how we endured. Uh, we never would have made it if we were built on that kind of carriage. So instead, we have methods to compensate for irregularity in the food supply. We have fat reserves, and at least for children who have smaller stomachs uh, and less fat to work with, uh, they give up on growth. Okay? So if you have low, what we call net nutrition, which means that uh, uh, Either the diet is bad, you're working hard or you're sick, or some combination of that, uh, you won't grow for weeks, months perhaps, or grow very slowly, or grow much less than would be the case if you had uh, good diet, good medical care, and weren't working too high. In other words, much less than these optimal conditions. Then, if good times return, uh, there's a process or phenomenon known as catch-up growth, whereby you can grow faster than what these numbers would indicate. And you saw Montbiard's son had a couple of those episodes over a period as short as six months. Uh, and so uh, that way you can restore, um, you know, genetically programmed height that would be realized under ideal circumstances. Uh, but if malnutrition is chronic or severe, even if it doesn't last very long, you'd probably end up stunted 
and the sensitive periods in human uh, childhood uh, for this are early childhood and adolescence when growth rates are ordinarily high. So if you're malnourished then, in terms of net nutrition, uh, it'll have a bigger effect, other things equal. Now, one more point to make about this slide, and that's genes, of course. When I started this work some 30 years ago, a lot of people dismissed it as, uh, well, silly. Uh, I mean, there were belly laughs of various kinds. Uh, I'm told you're working on, on heights because they said, well, it's all genetic. Well, yes, it is in a way, and no, it isn't. It's very important at the individual level. How tall each of us is in this room depends a lot on biological inheritance from your parents. Okay? And that's true whether you're well-nourished or poorly nourished. Genes still matter a lot. Okay? But these genetic individual differences tend to cancel in large populations. So that average height does reflect net nutritional conditions of the population <laughs> as a whole. So uh, the question then is, is genetic potential for growth the same in all populations around the world? Well, there have been a number of studies of this uh, undertaken by looking at uh, um, heights of children in various countries and continents, uh, children who grew up under good conditions. And it turns out they're all about similar height. Uh, and uh, we know that environment can uh, reduce heights by four, five, six inches, even seven inches among adults. Absolutely huge. Far, far more than one could expect uh, uh, minor genetic differences to exert. So uh, we're not saying there aren't genetic differences, but they're small compared to what environment we know environment can do. All right, here uh, there is one genetic difference, so I'll pause to point out on this slide, and that is between men and women, or boys and girls. Um, here the, well, boys have been blue for a long time, and girls pink. Today, the boys are pink, and the girls are blue, uh, and they're both born at about the same height, uh, 20, 21 inches, and they grow similarly up to about age 10. These are modern data. Uh, so those of you who have children or nieces or nephews, you know at age kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grades, the kids are all about the same height. But in middle school, things start to change. The sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, the girls are taller, stronger, uh, physically more adept, more athletic. Some say the boys never get over this. Uh, whether it's true or not, I, I don't know. Uh, ask yourselves that question. So we're talking about this period, these three years here, when the girls are growing faster than the boys because they go through the adolescent growth spurt earlier than boys, two to three years. Okay. Now, it is the case that boys have a somewhat more vigorous, that is the peak of the adolescent growth spurt is higher, they gain slightly more than girls do during their adolescent growth spurt, but three quarters of the difference of about four and a half inches between uh, men and women is due to 
the fact that boys grow three years more than girls, okay, at these rates right here, okay? So that's widely observed uh, around the world. It's also the case that uh, women or girls are more resistant to deprivation than our boys or men. For a given level of deprivation, they're less likely to die, more likely to survive. Uh, it may be more fat reserves, uh, something about their physiology, uh, whatever, but it is the case. All right, here's to summarize then. I don't know whether you can read this small print. Here we have stature and various sources. Uh, this methodology, this talk wouldn't be of much use if there weren't many, many sources of heights, uh, and indeed there are tens of millions of records uh, dealing with heights. Uh, they're super abundant, really, military being the most abundant. But I got started in this work studying slave manifests. I'll give you some results in a moment. These are documents required to uh, uh, control the African slave trade uh, in the United States beginning in 1808 to prove that slaves who arrived at some port of destination weren't smuggled in from Africa. The ship captain prepared a manifest to describe the cargo by name, age, height, sex, and color, and the collector at the port of uh, destination compared the manifest prepared at the port of origin with the cargo, and they were let in. So we have oath takers, students, passports, convicts. A lot of work has been done on convicts and prison records, police, National Guard, firemen, voter registration, on and on and on. You'd be surprised uh, where heights might be located. Uh, beyond special surveys. So, we've been talking here about proximate determinants of height, diet, disease, work intensity, uh, maintenance or basal metabol uh, metabolism, and of course, genetic contributors. Um, uh, but the ultimate, more interesting for social scientists are these socioeconomic determinants of the proximate determinants, things such as income and inequality, poverty, public health, measures, personal hygiene, uh, uh, the nature of pathogens and the environment where people live, food prices and so on, things of that sort. Uh, so the direction of causation goes from these socioeconomic to proximate determinants to determine height and there are functional consequences of stature for uh, longevity, mortality rates, poorly nourished populations generally don't live as long, other things equal because there's a uh, 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 early childhood deprivation that tends to lead to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, and certain kinds of cancer. That's well established in medical research today, so-called Barker hypothesis or the fetal origins hypothesis. But it has implications for work intensity. If you're poorly nourished in childhood or as an adult, typically uh, you're less capable of work. There are many studies that show relationship between heights and uh, physical productivity. Uh, cognitive development has received a lot of attention in recent years. 20, 25 years ago, there were people who doubted whether early childhood deprivation resulted in permanent cognitive deficits. It turns out they do. That's now pretty well established. 
So children of low birth weight, infants poorly nourished, uh, young children poorly nourished, especially in the first couple of years of life when the brain is developing, uh, are at a permanent disadvantage with respect to career opportunities. This is why I think many, many societies have underinvested in early childhood health and nutrition, because this is not known. A uh, very controversial paper uh, was published last year by a couple of economists at Princeton who argued, I mean, there is this connection between height and wages, or height and income, very well uh, established in many different studies. And they claimed that it's mainly due to cognitive consequences. Children who are poorly nourished in early childhood do not learn as well. Um, uh, young children who are malnourished uh, have, don't have the energy to explore, play, and interact with their environment. That is to train and exercise their brains. Uh, and uh, you must do it when you're young in order to realize your full cognitive potential. Uh, we'll see what the fallout is from that paper, but it's, it's a startling result that's now just creeping into economics and labor economics in particular. Uh, so, uh, uh, the uh, heights have many, many implications. Uh, there are papers emerging uh, now that are arguing that improved nutrition uh, played an important role in uh, the Industrial Revolution or in the Enlightenment. Uh, that is, uh, well, think about these things. I'm not here, it's not the main point of what I'm doing, but rather the implications of early childhood nutrition are multifold. Okay, uh, let's compare before we look at some results how average heights uh, compare with uh, measures of social performance that we know and love. That is GDP per capita and life expectancy. These data come from about 20 countries for which national height studies were conducted in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s. Um, and the income here, uh, GDP per capita, is constructed on a purchasing power parity basis. This situation, 1985 international dollars. And you see this uh, nonlinear relationship where income goes to from a few hundred dollars per year up to almost 15,000. Remember, it's 1985 dollars. Um, but that really doesn't matter. And the heights vary from about 135 to 150 uh, centimeters for boys age 12. You'd get a similar graph for girls or adults. Doesn't make a lot of difference. But what's interesting is how tight this relationship is, the correlation between per capita GDP, the log of per capita GDP and height is about 0.85, uh, very high. And of course, this relationship, why does it exist? In very poor countries, a few hundred dollars or a thousand or two of per capita income, uh, there's malnutrition there's poor medical care, uh, there's hard work, all of these things which tend to depress growth. And then if income goes up, the families who get this higher income spend it on basic necessities, food, clothing, shelter, medical care. 
the income elasticity of demand for these things is very high. Uh, and height response, children grow. Okay? But they're diminishing marginal returns to income or all the things that it stands for. Uh, and in fact, there has to be diminishing marginal returns, right, to this? If there weren't, if it was linear, Bill Gates' kids would be 10 feet tall. Right? You know, it's just an upper biological limit. So we can get into discussions of why humans are roughly the size they are, why aren't we two feet tall, why aren't we 10 feet tall, and things of that sort, that takes us a little far afield. I think there are good reasons why we are roughly the size we are. Still, there's um, scatter about this uh, line, which is a log function, for reasons of uh, food prices, uh, cultural practices and sharing food, uh, inequality is very important. Think of this, if you take uh, uh, 100 pounds from the richest family in Britain and give it to the poorest, the children in the richest family will not suffer, but those in the poorest family will benefit from more basic necessities. Okay? Therefore, redistribution from rich to poor affects average height. So average heights are a barometer, uh, an indirect measure of inequality. Okay? I'll give you some more information on that in a moment. Now, the other measure we know and love well, life expectancy at birth, same countries here as over here, same studies, but it's more of a linear relationship, at least within the range of the sample that we have available for study. So what happens, this is about 50 years, way down here in the 30s and 40s, it may become nonlinear or way up here. It's just there aren't any um, observations uh, for that. But the point is, both these measures in modern data are well correlated with average heights. Okay. Well, there's the time uh, article. Let me make a couple of comments. This is actually the cover. This uh, came out about 1996, I think it was October of 96, in the European and Asian editions. And I spoke with the editors at Time in America. I said, well, why didn't you publish this in the North American edition? Well, think about it. I'll give you a slide in a minute. Americans are falling behind the rest of the world, especially Northern Europeans, in height. They used to be the tallest in the world. That isn't true anymore. Uh, they, they were pretty frank about it. Uh, and so uh, there's my photo next to uh, my computer output. I'm a pack rat, so I saved all that. And this is the only good use I've made of it since it was prepared in the 70s and early 80s in my height studies. Now, of course, it's all saved electronically, and I suppose I could stand next to a thumb drive I'm holding or something, but uh, it doesn't have the same impact. Uh, and those photographers got down on the floor to, to make that shot. So upward and onward, um, and there have been many papers, uh, newspapers and other sources. There have been write-ups in America in uh, The New Yorker about research on heights, in Canada, McLean's magazine has, uh, has an, ex an expose on it. So it's attracting uh, a lot of media attention. And these are photos from the Time article, which show three generations in Ireland, 
Grandfather, father, son, stair steps. The same is happening in Asia, uh, in Japan, here, parents and son. But if you went to South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, now China, you all get the same kind of picture. Big in, as, as, as heights and living, uh, as income and living standards have improved, heights have responded. Okay, so they're growing a couple inches a generation. Um, and we see this in America, by the way, in professional sports, which are very high paying. So we get baseball players from Japan and uh, big basketball players from China, indeed all over the world, uh, partly as a result of human growth connected with rising living standards. So the advantages of heights then are they're super abundant. Tens of millions of records are out there available for study. We've only scratched the surface, really. Um, and if you go to skeletons, you can get them even much, much earlier, back thousands of years. I'll, I have a slide on that. I'll get to it in a minute. They're very easy to collect. Nothing like what's required to calculate GDP. This is why the Australians gave up on it. You need a massive bureaucracy. Anyone in this room could go out in an afternoon and get 100 or 200 heights in some poor neighborhood of London and figure out how well the children are doing. It's that easy. Visit two schools and compare their heights to modern height standards. Calculate the percentiles. You'll get a pretty good index of how well they're doing medically or in terms of their health. Also, unlike monetary measures, gross domestic product or wealth, heights, I think, are comparable across time and space, ethnic group and the like. Uh, we don't have the problem of exchange rates that deal with international comparisons of GDP. Of course, purchasing power parity uh, helps to cope with that. Uh, but then the bigger problem, I really think, is uh, uh, price indices or GDP deflators that uh, are very hard uh, to take seriously when they get to be 100, 200, 300, 400 years. Heights, on the other hand, mean if you're stunted in 1400 and you're stunted in 1900, it has roughly the same implications for your childhood, how well or sick you were, and what your physical capacities are as an adult. Okay, seven or eight slides now, we'll wrap up soon, dealing with applications. And the first one here deals with American slaves, um, where I really got my feet wet in this kind of work. These are from slave manifests, I've already based on about 50,000 observations. So what do we have here? These are percentiles of modern height standards uh, for slave children. That's zero, and that's five, and that's 10. 50 is modern height standards. So what does this mean? Starting at age three and a half, up to about age 10, these children are terribly short, among the smallest children ever measured. There are a few in the same ballpark, but not many. Roughly 99 out of 100 modern children are taller than the average slave child in early childhood. Okay. 
they're three, three and a half standard deviations below the mean. Then, uh, that little blip there is a bit of an artifact due to, to the, uh, and the decline, the earlier appearance of adolescent growth spurt in modern children. But the pickup, the improvement starts about age nine or 10, and then the girls who are still blue end up at about the 25th percentile. That's only about 1.6 inches below modern high standards. And, and they're taller then than the typical nobility in Europe at the 25th. This is in early 19th century, early mid 19th century. There's this enormous recovery. The men end up about uh, 1.8 inches below modern height standards. So I'll give you some other data in a moment, but this is virtually unprecedented recovery from early childhood to teenage years. They're stunted six inches in early childhood, six and a half inches, and they end up stunted less than two inches. Gain of four to four and a half inches. And why? What are the implications? So on and so forth. Uh, let me give you just a very quick synopsis of what I think was going on. There was a severe problem of low birth weight among slaves, heavy work by pregnant women, right up to the time of delivery. They had a very abbreviated pattern of breastfeeding. We know from how much cotton they picked relative to delivery, that was true. Um, and so they weren't breastfeeding. So the little kids were in the nursery being supplemented by food, low in protein, and undoubtedly contaminated. Okay. So then, according to instructions uh, to overseers and letters to the editor of Southern Agricultural Journals, meat was reserved for working slaves. So the little kids have a low protein diet. They're fed separately for the most part. There's dietary segregation. And even if they're fed around the dinner table in the family cabin, if you want to call it that, the family slave quarters, probably the parents are not sharing the meat with the children. Because slave owners are saying that in order to get a full day's work out of slaves in the field, they need half pound of pork a day. So if they share with their children, that means they'll probably get whipped later because they can't keep up with the field game. Uh, this is very pernicious for the family. Uh, it has all kinds of implications. This enormous stunting in early childhood also results in cognitive deficits for the young children. It may affect personality. It certainly affected the capacity of slaves after emancipation to cope with the new market economy. They just didn't have the tools. And quite possibly, they didn't get the tools until uh, generations born after emancipation had a better childhood. And so I'm theorizing here, speculating, that children born after slavery emerged as adults in the southern labor markets in the 1880s and especially the 1890s as more competitive individuals. And uh, what happened? Lynchings, okay? Lynchings peak in the 1890s. Uh, Jim Crow laws appear. All kinds of social political instruments of repression 
uh, are mobilized to keep down this newly emergent, and I would say more competitive population. And this doesn't work through until the 1930s, 1940s. Lynchings largely end in the 30s, but there are all kinds of harassment well into the 60s uh, and even thereafter. So uh, that little graph has enormous implications. Now here's some more graphs. This shows heights in the US and in Britain. Lower data come from Roderick Flood and Kenneth Walker's book on height, health, and history. And these are the background data that were in the book. Uh, Professor Lewis referred to uh, health and welfare during industrialization. And the next two or three slides have that raw evidence. And you see Americans are tall. That's one thing. They are the tallest uh, in the world in the 1700s, 173 centimeters. Modern height standards are about 178 in the US. Of course, the Dutch are now about 182. They are the tallest in the world uh, at this point. Um, so why the difference? And if you looked at almost any European country, Americans are still taller. I would argue they had very good diet, abundant, super abundant land, lots of protein, the best of new and old world crops, small grains, fruits, vegetables, fowl, pigs, you know, cattle, sheep, goats, the whole smorgasbord with lots of land. And lots of land meant low population density, very few communicable diseases, very few epidemics, and so on. So they're really very well nourished. Then there's this slide, they go downhill after 1830. Uh, a lot of puzzling over that. Uh, food prices were going up, public schools were emerging. Instead of getting colds and chicken pox, these kids got diphtheria, you know, scarlet fever, whooping cough, really nasty stuff that took a long time to get rid of. Uh, we had the transportation revolution products moving all over the country, along with germs, of course, and pathogens. Civil War, there's lots of things going on. And then we get this recovery starting in the 1880s. These are organized by year of birth notice. And notice this leveling off. Americans have not grown much in height in the last 40 years. Uh, interesting question. We'll come back to that. Uh, true in England, uh, they're smaller, and there is this decline associated with industrialization, which is one of the themes of health and welfare during industrialization. Both the UK and the US showed this decline in the standard of living as assessed by average heights. And so urbanization certainly played a role in the case of the UK uh, and also in the case of the United States. But I won't, I won't dwell on a long list of possible explanations. Let me give you a couple more slides here. Here's Sweden and Japan, also interesting cases. Um, the Swedes, at least by European standards, are pretty tall. Um, 166 centimeters, surpassing the 170 mark by about 1870 or 1880, and then moving up. Now, notice they didn't have a big dip in heights like the US or like Britain. Uh, I was in Spain last week, uh, and uh, some people are working on heights there, and they showed me a graph for 19th century Spain. Pre-industrial, 
big decline in 19th century Spain. Very interesting. I'm not quite sure what's going on. It means these cycles are not caused only by industrialization. There are other things at work. In Sweden, there were very subsistence crises. The last bad one was in the 1860s, and you can just see a little slowdown in the rate of growth there. Japan, much smaller. In 1950, the Japanese average height, they're the smallest of any industrial country. The men are about 160 centimeters. 160. And before that, they were in the 150s. Okay? Tiny, tiny. Why? Low protein diet, poor public health, poor personal hygiene. Uh, and uh, according to Gail Honda, who gathered these data and published her chapter in Health and Welfare During Industrialization, the military diverted a lot of resources. So public health measures were known, but they just weren't applied to that case. Of course, since 1950, Japan has had the highest rate of growth, uh, probably of any country on record. We've gained 12, 14 centimeters in average height. So young Japanese today, about 175 centimeters, and almost surely within the next generation will uh, equal modern height standards in the United States and many other countries. Okay. Uh, the Netherlands and France. Nice long series, and these are based largely on conscripts. So there's no question of minimum height standards like in Goethe's drawing and all of this. Everybody's measured. Okay? Um, now, the Dutch are blue here, the French are pink, and they're about the same height in the early mid. 19th century, both about 165. The Dutch aren't particularly tall then. They're, tall, they're 182 now, okay, the Dutch men. So it's hard to say it's genetic, right? It's environmental is what's really going on because the gene pool really hasn't changed that much. Uh, and the Dutch, though, they did have a pre-industrial crisis of some kind. Maybe it's the hungry 40s that's affecting it. Uh, maybe what was going on in Spain also affected uh, uh, what's going on in the Netherlands. I don't know. But they did advance a lot more, uh, a lot faster in the 19th and especially the 20th century. Again, consult chapters in health and welfare during industrialization if you want some detailed explanations for what might have been going on. About three slides. Here's a relationship between femur length, which you can get from skeletons, and average height. It's based upon American troops who died in World War II and were buried under battlefield conditions with their dog tags. So these skeletons could be linked with um, muster rolls or uh, enlistment records. So we knew their exact height, and the Army wanted this study done in order to use results to identify people who weren't buried with dog tags. So height is obviously very important. And you see a very tight relationship there. This is an outlier. That shouldn't be there. Uh, but uh, uh, mentally scratch that out of there. But uh, R squares is pretty hefty. You notice that if you extend this line backwards, it doesn't go through the origin. 
there's a positive intercept. And what does that mean? It means leg length is not proportional to height. As people get taller, their legs get relatively longer. Okay? So the elasticity of height with respect to leg length is only about 0 0.6. 10% increase in leg length gives you a 6% increase in height is what that means. But with this kind of relationship, you can study skeletons now. And there are some results for Europe, northern Europe over the last 1,200 years. Uh, and this is a very surprising result, not anything that I expected. Um, I gathered these data from the published literature, but our newly uh, gathered evidence for this large European project we're conducting confirms this. So I'll just use this one. In the 9th to 11th century, in Northern Europe, that's UK, Netherlands, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and Finland, um, and uh, Northern Germany, they were about 173 centimeters, which is as tall as Americans were in the 18th century. This is stunning. 173 is, and moreover, there was a monotonic decline in heights based upon skeletal materials, bottoming out sometime in the 17th or 18th century, and then recovery. But Northern Europeans were not as tall, again, as they were in the early Middle Ages until the early 20th century. We're, a host of questions are raised by this. Most people totally unaware. It's off the radar screen of a long swing of 1,200 years. Historians don't study phenomena in events in blocks of millennia. They're much more focused. All social scientists are. Uh, and, uh, but this uh, does raise the question why. And maybe there was, of course, a little ice age in the medieval warm period uh, where uh, uh, crops could flourish in northern Europe where fishing was very good and so forth. We have a little ice age, but we also have a lot of other things. Urbanization, global exploration and trade, importation of new pathogens. We have wars over religion and over state building, uh, on and on. Uh, and then this is not reversed, some would say, till it got warmer again or until you had repeal of the corn laws and cheap food was brought into Europe from other parts of the world. So think about that. This is very much a work in progress. Here's uh, data for the US, cropping up here very soon. This shows inequality by occupation in height. And it goes from the 1700s right up to the 1970s. Uh, and this length here shows the difference in height between the tallest and shortest occupational groups, which consists of artisans, laborers, farmers, or professional, four simple categories. In the 18th and 19th century, farmers were the tallest. They had access to food, low population density, very little exposure to disease. This reverses in the 20th century. But you notice about the time of uh, the mid-18th uh, century, the class differences in height in the United States are minuscule. But with that decline in average height, which you see here, the differences widen. The largest difference, class difference in height I'm aware of on record was explored by 
Robert Flood in uh, Height, Health, and History. And that's actually in Britain in the early 19th century, where average class distance among teenage boys was 20 centimeters. This is Sandhurst versus uh, the poor boys of London uh, and the founding uh, British Mar uh, the Marine Society boys. So it is a very sensitive barometer of, uh, of, uh, of inequality. Here's uh, modern data on heights in Europe. Uh, this paper was published some 10 years ago, and I think you can make it out. Um, Portugal, Spain, or down here in uh, the 160s, mid-160s. This is for men now. These are based, again, on enlistment records, conscript records, essentially. Uh, and the Dutch are way up here, about 182. The Danes, um, Norway, Sweden, and like, and others in between. Um, so the range of heights across Europe in recent modern times, good 10, 15, 12, 12 15 centimeters, rather hefty. Um, and uh, you notice they're leveling off in northern Europe, and heights are growing faster in southern Europe uh, than in northern Europe. And there's convergence. Okay. Maybe not surprising. There's convergence in incomes. So uh, it's not surprising. Last slide. These data come from Korea. Um, and uh, I'll pause to say uh, they're very interesting. They're taken from refugees who escaped from uh, North Korea in South Korea, and they were interviewed and measured. So um, we have here, you can debate the representativeness if you like, but uh, what I've read on that seems to be pretty accurate. So we have North Korean men here and North Korean women here, the green, South Korean men here and South Korean women there. So the South Koreans are growing, is the point, since the 1930s. Uh, and uh, the men have put on, they've gone from 165, characteristic of Europe in early mid-19th century, to uh, 174. And the next generation will probably be three or four centimeters taller than that. Uh, whereas actually the North Koreans have gone down in height over the last 20 years. And they've st stood over the last 50 or 60 years at about the same, 165. And in fact, this point was made in the first presidential debate in the United States, uh, John McCain versus Barack Obama. McCain pointed out, you know, they're talking about institutions and what makes countries rich or poor. He, he mentioned essentially these data. Uh, I mean, I didn't think he was up on the height literature that much. You know, I, I, I sent him working papers and things. I guess he reads them. Uh, I mean, what am I to make from this? Uh, I still didn't vote for him, but you know, he's up on the height literature. And uh, uh, it, it just shows, once again, how sensitive heights are. I think everyone who knows anything about North Korea believes there's a lot of deprivation and a huge amount of inequality. And so, but the public statistics are very few coming out of such places. In fact, one of the more interesting applications 
of height literature, maybe to go back to Russia and Eastern Europe and so on over the last century or two and see what the biological reality was relative to the published data and how much those were doctored or manipulated in some way, distorted uh, to please themselves or to please, uh, to please others. So that's it. We have a few, few minutes for, for questions. Uh, I invite questions from, from the audience. Uh, would people please identify themselves uh, when they speak? There are a few roving microphones. If you wait for the roving microphones to reach you, then I'm sure we'll all hear to the better. At the back there. Right, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Christian Kroll. I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. Um, first of all, thank you very much for the very interesting results you've shown us. Um, I'd like to pose a question on an earlier slide on the causal mechanisms. Um, I don't know if you recall it, but um, you placed height right between socioeconomic conditions and health-related indicators. And my question is, um, isn't height rather one of the uh, health-related indicators? Um, I, I believe that um, socioeconomic conditions have an influence on height. But can you elaborate on why you put height in the middle between these two groups and not as a health right. related? I, I can go back to that slide. Um, that one, I think, is what you're referring to. Yeah, well, height is in the middle. I had to start somewhere. Uh, and uh, here are the sources. But you notice this arrow goes around here. It's a, a causal loop uh, where mortality, morbidity, labor productivity, and so on affect output per person or affect income, which feed back. So it's a simultaneous system uh, where it feeds uh, back into income, inequality, public health, and so on. I thought it was just at least a useful way for organizing thoughts and information about the process um, uh, the factors, the influences on height and, and their implications and still get in a long list as we have here on sources of, uh, of information. There are other ways I think one could uh, organize these data but uh, this last loop is, is very important and frankly hasn't been that much explored. You know a lot of work has been done on this especially by human biologists uh, and, and in fact, breaking the diet further down into protein, calories, fat, micronutrients, you know, so iron, iodine, and so on. Um, and uh, then the social scientists have been uh, more interested in developing this panel and this arrow here. Uh, that is what determines heights. Uh, not thinking of it in terms of diet, but in terms of other things. Uh, and then, of course, working over here on the functional consequences of heights. And that literature is, uh, is blossoming now as well. So the height literature really has grown enormously in the last 12 to 15 years. I've just completed a review of, uh, of this and will be published uh, shortly. It's really gone way into economics and economic development. 
Uh, among social scientists, I'm a little disappointed to say that there hasn't been much work in political science or in sociology. Uh, a huge amount, of course, in anthropology and the medical literature. There are hundreds and hundreds of studies. Uh, so it's, it's broadening out, and I would think there would be a natural audience uh, among any discipline that's interested in inequality, and human welfare, and social performance, and both sociology and political science uh, have that as main items on their research agendas. And there's plenty of data in the modern world and in the historical world, too, to study this. So maybe in the next five or ten years, uh, there'll be an enormous change there. Tim Loynig from the department. Um, you've told us that on average, I'm of average height, before anybody misinterprets this question, uh, you've said that on average tall people are cleverer than short people and that cleverer people do better in the labor market, etc. You've told us that people were tallest in Europe in the 10th and 11th centuries. So should one of the questions that economic historians be asking is why didn't the Industrial Revolution happen in 1066? It's always fun uh, to play counterfactuals uh, like this. Uh, we all do it. Um, to imagine a, a different world and consider the, the implications of that. Um, and I did link growing heights, and certainly Bob Fogel, as much or more than anyone, has linked growth in stature in the last 200 years to industrialization. The connections I think you can see from this graph. He tries to estimate the uh, contribution of improving health as registered by heights to growth in national income in Britain from the late 18th to the late 20th century. Um, so, to answer your question, obviously uh, heights are not a sufficient condition, or health is not a sufficient, good health is not a sufficient condition for. Uh, for economic growth or industrialization. It may help, but apparently it's a very, very complex process uh, and uh, a fascinating process, too. Um, uh, you know, I, I've wondered, I, when I visited All Souls uh, three or four years ago, someone uh, gave a very interesting lecture, they're an archaeologist, on Romans at Work was the title of it. Uh, and how they had these proto-factories that produced that water wheels, uh, huge plants to pr press olive oil, uh, employed dozens and dozens of people that had, to me, from archaeological remains, all the elements of look like industrial revolution underway. Why didn't it happen? And I've seen this in other parts of the world, too, with incredible craftsmanship and ingenuity. Uh, th that uh, was displayed in Turkey in uh, the 15th, 16th centuries. Remarkable clocks and so on uh, uh, mechanisms produced. Why wasn't there an industrial revolution there? At least in some sense the technological capability. So there, there are other ingredients, whether it's property rights or government protecting property, uh, opportunities for, for upward mobility, but health and heights are only part of the story. And I wasn't being facetious when I suggested the Enlightenment you know, might have a connection with nutrition. Here's a blossoming of, of intellectual curiosity and gathering information about the world that could have fed 
certainly Joan Mulcair thinks that was one of the major ingredients of the Industrial Revolution in England and in, in other countries. It was one of the, the prime movers. So maybe that's necessary. A certain amount of leisure or intellectual curiosity. Uh, others would say, well, coal is the essential ingredient. There is that argument. And steam engines. Those two, and maybe they go together. I uh, have one but not the other. Industrialization can be delayed. Uh, so I don't think we know the answers uh, to the causes of the Industrial Revolution. We have some good hunches, and we can make pretty good lists of necessary conditions, but not the list of sufficient ones. It's probably not done, not finished. Hi, hello. I'm uh, Peter Sims, a PhD student in the department. Uh, my question is about the comparability of your data across uh, a time, place. I, I'm specifically thinking of, of your Japanese family. Um, now, one would think, looking at the, the, the Japanese grandparents, who are, in fact, stunningly short, and your data shows it's like 20 centimeters below uh, European standards, that they would be incredibly unhealthy. But as far as I know, the life expectancies are actually quite high. Uh, now, are there any factors that have a disproportionately large effect on height relative to health? Uh, and would that perhaps explain some of these discrepancies across time? People are still dying young or, or living unhealthy lives, but for whatever reason, growing more than in other places. Yeah, nice question. Uh, Japan is here. I mean, they are short. Uh, that's Japan right there. Uh, life expectancy of about 80. They're smaller than their life expectancy uh, would suggest. All right. My explanation for this, my hypothesis, I'm getting together some students to work on this. We're having some trouble getting all the data we want uh, out of Japan. But it's a fascinating question. Uh, and I think it has to do with intergenerational phenomena. And that is the growth potential of the child is partly limited by the size and reproductive fitness of the mother. And so if a mother was malnourished in her childhood, this will limit the growth potential of the child, even if she, as an adult, has good nutrition. So it has to do with the capacity of the placenta to nourish the child and so on. Uh, and so, in one generation, you may be able to catch up you know, half or 60%, but it takes uh, two, three, four generations for this to work itself out. So my prediction is this. The next generation of young Japanese will be at roughly American height standards. Uh, and it just, it's when the current crop of young adults has children, their children, that is, will 20 years from now. So it, there are limits to the pace at which average height can grow in a country. And I think Japan has demonstrated probably the upper <coughs> limits in the last 50 or 60 years of what's possible. But to actually track this, you would need data on heights of parents, some socioeconomic circumstances of the parents, the heights of children. You'd want at least three generations, presumably, to see how but getting all the longitudinal data one would really like to explore this hypothesis is a little bit tricky. But a 
if there's a country that probably has these data, it would be Japan. They're very good record keepers. It's just a little forbidding unless you understand the language. Anybody in the room looking for a great dissertation topic out there? This is one, right? Uh, it would make excellent reading in economic history and human biology and so on and so forth. In the middle of the back. Yes. Where do we get studies on Africa? Well, in uh, the present, that is the last, historian says the present, it's the last 50 years, I guess. Uh, you have to understand that. Um, the, by far the largest compilation of height data is in a book by Phyllis Eveleth and J.M. Tanner called Worldwide Variation in Human Growth. Um, and in fact, these data came out of there, out of that appendix. There's about a 150-page appendix that just reports height studies. Uh, and there are many such studies for Africa. And you'll see there the Watusi are not physical giants, as some legends would have it. Uh, they're only about 170 of the men, 175 centimeters. The Maasai are a little bit tall, but they have a super high protein diet, okay? Uh, blood, uh, blood of cattle and, uh, and uh, meat and milk and so on. Um, and there are other societies that have had super rich diets and protein. What I didn't mention are the equestrian nomads of the Great Plains in the United States. They're actually the tallest in the world, as far as we can tell, in the mid-19th century. Um, so when Americans, European Americans, are losing height uh, here, I mean, the Plains Indians are over here. Uh, about 173 centimeters, and the Northern Cheyenne are about 176 and a half. Uh, they are virtually modern height standards, and people who move west to the plains were stunned, uh, these physical giants. Um, and, uh, but they lived on buffalo, okay, they had horses. Horses changed their culture tremendously. So I think the Maasai, in some sense, very different continents, and the Plains Indians, had this very rich diet and protein. And there are studies that confirm that adequate protein is essential for growth. Um, such studies were done in Guatemala in, starting in 1969 uh, and through the 70s when INCAP, uh, an organization for study of health in Central America, um, did some randomized studies. They went into villages uh, and uh, they gave some children and some families uh, protein supplements and they gave other placebos. You couldn't conduct a study like this today, it'd be unethical. But back then, it was not known whether protein was crucial for child growth. It was debated. Uh, so, they gave some kids a protein-fortified drink, others didn't. Those with a protein-fortified drink grew rapidly, so much so that some of the Younger kids overtook in height their older siblings. Uh, it was absolutely extraordinary. Um, these children then followed, you know, into their adult lives. 
and the ones who got the supplement had lower mortality rates, higher grade, or performance in schools, better jobs, higher incomes, everything you want to think about. It seems to be permanent then, uh, these early childhood supplements. So uh, there's a huge literature on this if you want to see the latest. Uh, Jerry Berman at Penn has a, a working paper, B-E-R-H-M-A-N, J-E-R-E, and you can download that. And that's the best recent compilation of the literature on that kind of study that, that I know of. I'm going to take one final question and be right there. Max, would you? Thank you. Max Schulz from the department. How far away from the physiological maximum height are we at the moment? <laughs> oh, yes. It's one of those, it's a perfect question. A perfect question leading into dinner and drinks. Um, well, I'm glad you raised it um, because we can start getting philosophical. Um, if you look at data organized by Bob Fogel, which came from Norway, and Professor Waller, uh, which shows um, uh, survival curves as a function of average height in, in BMI as well. Um, that um, survival rates are highest for men uh, after age 50 if they were about 6 feet, 6 one, six two. It's kind of flat. You look to be about optimal height uh, uh, for, for men in that regard. Um, but uh, it, it's pretty flat. It's only when you get really tall. And very tall people tend to die young, too, of cardiovascular disease. Uh, because being seven feet tall, given our construction, is very hard on your heart. Uh, giraffes can make it because they have a very different cardiovascular system and they can be really tall, uh, but we can't. The other problem, and this is more philosophical, um, is, uh, well, why is there that curve to begin with? It's partly cardiovascular and I think it has to do with accidents too. If you get 10 feet tall and you fall and hit your head, it's really going to hurt. Uh, and you're likely to die. So then, why aren't we two feet tall? Really, our dist distant ancestors, or different mammals, were very small. And so I posed this question, again, over wine or something, uh, to my anthropology friends. And the best answer I've heard on that is it has to do with the nature of fire. Think about it. We evolved over millions of years, keeping predators away. Uh, a lot of them thought we were pretty good to eat, after all. And you can find remains with tooth marks in the head and so on. I'm sure uh, some people lost their lives that way. But to keep the predators at bay, we built fires. Uh, and the nature of fire is such that if you're only two feet high, you can only build a little fire like that, and it's going to burn out soon. Okay? In order to keep the animals at bay all night, you need a big fire and a big person to build it, to cut the wood, to feed the wood, and so on. And so we evolved, because of the nature of fire, to become larger. And if that lasts long enough, over two, three million years, it becomes built into our genetic organization. I don't know whether you like that explanation or not, but <laughs> it's, you can't, you, 
You can be too tall, <laughs> apparently, and you can be too short. But, of course, if you look at the individual level, we're talking about averages, there's huge, huge variation. And this is one of the other puzzles. When I first started working, uh, well, what I have noticed over the years, and I've been working in this area some 30 years, is there is a modest correlation between a person's height and their enthusiasm for this work. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it's always the folks, uh, you know, rather short, who've said to me, oh, come on, this just can't be true. And <laughs> my, my parents didn't beat me, and they didn't malnourish me, uh, and, and so on. Well, you, you can't read that into it because there's so much genetic variation. You see what I'm saying? And there have been some brilliant people who are short, among economists, Milton Friedman, about this high, you know. Uh, and his best buddy, George Stigler, was this high. Uh, they made quite a pair. Uh, so when it comes to predicting individual behavior, a lot of this is just out the window. Uh, one final comment, though, and that is, the future of pediatrics. You know, if you take your children to the pediatrician uh, and they will measure them and tell you what percentile of modern height standards they are, um, and uh, then there's a question, do they need growth hormone or not or some other kind of supplement uh, that, may, that may come up. But really, what you would like to have is information on how tall a particular child should be. The average growth charts are useful, but you know, how tall should you be? Well, I think in the near future, and I'm told by geneticists it's possible now, you know, there are perhaps dozens of genes that determine height and growth, but that you could essentially extract someone's DNA at some point, if you had the right information, and figure out how tall they should be. So we're getting into the area then of designer medical care. And so you go to the physician's office and, I mean, you could be stunted, you could be stunted at 6'2". Maybe you should be 6'5". You see what I'm saying? Uh, th that's the important point. And if you can determine how tall you should be and then mobilize nutritional and other resources optimal for you, you might have an unusual need for iodine or zinc, or protein, or any of a number of other things that you wouldn't know about that could end up limiting your growth, uh, affecting functional capacity, and the like. So uh, this is really, I think, the leading edge of medicine, uh, not, not just in human growth, but all kinds of things, rather than just taking a standard dose of penicillin or some other drug, is get something optimized for you. We're probably not that far away from it. As I draw proceedings to a close, I'd like to thank everyone for braving the British climate to be here tonight, and indeed braving the chaotic British transport system, which I experienced personally this morning. So thank you all for, for coming. Thanks uh, for I'd, your like to I'd like to remind you that the next... I was going to thank Rick for leaving us with a question like a good social scientist, but that's what you've done, Rick. Many thanks. Right, thanks. And thanks to everyone for coming.